Welcome to Rooftop Church. This podcast is part of our Sunday sermon series, where each week we dive into the Word of God and the powerful message of Christ. I feel like I haven't really um, preached in a while in the book of Ruth, but if you are joining us for the first time in a while... And the month of October is when we started our journey in the book of Ruth. So we're going to jump right back into it. So uh, Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. So meet me in the Old Testament, book of Ruth chapter 4. Let me just recap what's going on here. So in this book of Ruth, it's a very little book. We have main characters of Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi. And Ruth and Naomi are widows. Ruth is a Moabite widow who had chosen to live her life in Bethlehem. While given the freedom to remain in her homeland of Moab, she decides to choose to live the rest of her life, probably 30, 40 years left, and says, you know what? I'm going to be with you, Naomi. I'm going to go to Bethlehem. I'm going to live the rest of my life as a foreigner and an intimate life with mother-in-law. Some of you women understand the joys that bring um, to your heart rest of your life, you and your mother-in-law alone. Anyways, maybe that joke is not flying well this morning. I know you love your family. So that's happening, and Ruth is, is just, life is just really tough. She's, she's picking the leftover grains uh, allowed by the farmers, by the Jewish laws that poor widows Orphans and, and people just who are homeless are allowed to glean. So she's living day to day without a real job and without the security of being fed well or without the prospect of any wealth or her life getting much better in the future. And Ruth is encountered by this man named Boaz. Everyone say with me, Boaz. Boaz was a special man. Boaz was not the other asses, but he was the top of all the men in that era. So uh, long story short, they fancy each other, and Boaz, Ruth, they kind of like, you know, like all these hearts, their, their hearts are, you know, fluttered, and like they can't go to sleep at night because they're thinking about each other. The Bible doesn't say that, but you got to assume that that was what's taking place, and they finally meet and Ruth initiates, I think Boaz was sending plenty of signals, and Ruth said, you know what? She kneels herself, and she just allows herself at the feet of Boaz, which is in that old Jewish customs, signifying that, would you please take me as your wife? And so that contact is initiated, and Boaz, I mean, here's a woman that pretty much allowing herself to be ruled over immediately right at that instance, he pauses. He does not accept the request immediately. Ruth saying, please take me as your wife. He being a godly man, man of noble character, he says, you know what? Let's do this the right way. There's actually a custom that I have to follow. While I understand your feelings for me, I'm going to pause right here. This is what Pastor Roland spoke about three weeks ago in chapter 3. They decide to pause that moment, and they understand that there's actually a Jewish custom that they have to follow, that in any case a widow must remarry, they have to follow the tradition of you go from the near, they have a degree of kinsmen. So if the husband is deceased, the next rightful person that can marry the widow is what? 
the brother of the deceased husband. So that was the Jewish custom. It was fairly common. So now if there's no brother acceptable or willing to take this person as a wife, then that, that right, that responsibility gets passed on to the cousin. To the, so it, it keeps going, expanding. The opportunity extends to whoever accepts. As long as you are within the line of family, that you are given the right to marry. Are you guys caught up now? That's a summary of chapters 1, 2, 3. And here we are. We are about to see what happens next. So Boaz and Ruth are very close to uh, getting married, but they have to clear a couple of hurdles here. Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and it's a, a, it's a fairly lengthy passage, so we're going to alternate reading one verse at a time. And this is a reading of God's word. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend, sit down here, and he turned aside and sat down. And he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. Amen. Friends, would you just quickly bow your heads with me in prayer? God, we thank you for um, allowing us the blessing and the privilege to be in your presence. God, we hearken our ears. God, we open up our hearts that we may receive the truth of your word, God. God, uh, woo us again with your love. God, that you have found us in the pit of despair, in the pit of sin, and the mess that we could not get out of our own, Lord. But God, here we are uh, sitting, uh, receiving so freely, and dr drinking from the fountain of your grace. God, we pray for the miracle of your love to be experienced in this room right now. So God, we pray not only for the understanding in the mind, but God, we pray for the faith in our hearts to receive and cling to you with all that we have. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Boaz is really determined to settle the matter. And Boaz, I hope you understand by now the main motif here is he really wants to be with Ruth. They have thought through and he has thought about the past. They have thought about the troubles that each of them had gone through. And he was, in, he was sure of that for the rest of his life that he would want to be with Ruth. And he was willing to do whatever the responsibilities 
war. So where is Boaz now? He's now at the town's gate. Uh, I'm not a Jew. I've never been to Israel, so I don't know how this custom works, but I could only infer, draw from the, the, the commentaries that I've read I, and the little Jewish context and culture that I know. So at that time, any time an important decision were to be made, any time that even private and family de- decisions were to be made, they had to be witnessed and be validated by the elder statesmen in that community. So if I, as a man, wanted to settle something in my family, wanted to validate, I guess the modern-day example is like getting a document notarized. So uh, if you want to apply for some, anything federal, you have to get things auto, uh, notarized, and you have to pay like $30, $35. And, and that allows you to say, you know what, this is an official statement. So even though as, as Boaz He's a grown man. He has the right, and he's processing what he must do in order for that transaction to be validated and to be affirmed, and, and for that to be held in legal courtroom. He had to have witnesses. So he brings himself to this town's gate. Um, I imagine that they're just sitting, standing, as, as a lot of the people and a lot of men in the Middle Eastern culture they loiter, they stand around, and they just talk. So. He brings himself there, and he he just presents his case. That he presents the case that that Naomi has put her family's land up for sale, and this relative has priority in this purchase. The concept Boaz uses is to redeem the land to prevent it from disappearing from the family. So Naomi, through uh, her husband and Ruth uh, in the family of Elimelech, uh, they were allotted certain piece of land because every Jewish tribe and person were given as inheritance a plot of land. But for whatever reasons, because they were probably too poor, they were without very significant jobs, they're now in a place to surrender this. And he's now presenting his case. Some kinsmen should redeem it because we don't want this inheritance to just disappear. And Boaz states the case that I am within the line of their relatives, but I'm not the very closest person to do that. You have to wait in line. I'm not qualified to that just yet, but I know someone who can, and we need to find out if that person will. And settle the matter whether someone will pay off the debt for Ruth and now be given the inheritance of the land. So you guys, are you guys with me? And he approaches the nearest kinsman. And here's verse 6. This is Boaz talking now. I cannot redeem it for myself because I would, uh, actually, this is now the person that is qualified. He says he's willing. He says, but now I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. So this nearer kinsman, someone who's closer to Ruth, someone who's more qualified to take Ruth as his wife, at first he signs off on it. At first he likes the idea that, you know what, I will buy that plot of land because I would be getting that. But the moment Boaz brings up the idea, not only, for, uh, not only do you have to redeem that land, in that process you also have to take this woman you also have to take this poor widow 
Now take her as your wife. When that twofold proposition was made to that nearer kinsman, he immediately refuses. He says, You know what? I will sign off on the first proposition, but the second I cannot. Because now, if I take her as my wife, then that meddles with my inheritance that's now that I'm due in my direct family line. Are you guys with me here? So the truth of the matter is that he could, but he just didn't want to. He was not willing to be extra merciful. He was not willing to do something that was not a financial gain to himself. So if you're Boaz, if you're Ruth, you're kind of taking it personally, but you're also what? Kind of glad because the real man that I want to marry is next in line. And I really would love for Boaz to take action next. So Boaz then steps in. He swoops in, and the man of God he is, and, the, and the, I, I'm pretty sure Boaz was a handsome man as well. That, that's why Ruth had to fall for him. So as a handsome, and I'm, I'm pretty sure he had a very nice voice as well. He says, you know what? What this kinsman is rejecting to do, I am willing. I will pay for the plot of land. I will take care of the debt for my woman Ruth. Not only that, I will gladly take Ruth as my wife. Oh, by the way, Pastor Roland alluded to this three weeks ago. Likely, Boaz could have been married already, but we don't know that. So I want to think for, for a second, using the liberty in this context, that Boaz was probably likely without a family of his own. Again, that's left up for interpretation. And Boaz says, you know what? I will take Ruth, and I will assume the responsibility of taking care of Ruth for the rest of her life. In verse 9, and Boaz does this in front of everybody. This is a public transaction now. You are now witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilin and Malin. He's saying, now I inherit everything that had belonged to Naomi. Now, because I have paid all the outstanding debt, that signifies that Ruth, this poor widow, this Moabite woman, is now my wife. And the elders that have gathered there, I think they were kind of impressed. They were rather surprised that a man would take upon this responsibility to initiate a transaction. He was a man of status. He was a man of wealth and good reputation. He did not have to, but he initiates this long process. He willingly took upon any responsibility that befell on Ruth and Naomi. And they were genuinely pleased. And so they bless Boaz. I'm not sure if they thanked Boaz for it, but the scriptures tell us that we are witnesses now. May the blessing of God be upon you. Guys, quickly, what did that mean for Ruth? What did what Boaz had to do for Ruth, what, how did that impact Ruth's 
life. And I've alluded to this earlier. There were so many challenges and suffering that Ruth had to endure up to this point, living her life as a widow and a foreigner. This transaction meant that she didn't have to worry about food again. Let me just be very practical. Without even the talk of love, from this point on, she didn't have to work, uh, worry about food. She didn't have to beg. She didn't have to glean. I guess no food means also she didn't have to work again. Second, she had security. She belonged to somebody, meaning she was chosen I'm not just talking about social security. I'm not just talking about welfare. I'm not talking about like, oh, she didn't have to work for the rest of her life again because she got herself a man. I'm talking about emotional security. Do you know that in chapter 2 when we read about the working environment for Ruth, she had to risk her life. She was not safe. She was exposed to the dangers of other men approaching her and treating her. Oftentimes, what they would do to foreign women, widows, Oh, there were plenty of opportunities of mistreatment. Now from this, this, this day forward, because she now belonged to Boaz, she didn't have to live under fear. Also, she was restored of her re- inheritance. Now her debt was paid off. Money was required to purchase the field, but it also required giving up one's own right. Now, Someone came to her side, someone that loved her, someone that cared for her. Someone said, you know what, I will take full responsibility of you, regardless of your past, regardless of your current circumstances, regardless of what, how much money you have. I will assume all and any responsibility that befalls you. This meant Ruth, from this point on, to live her life again. No suffering. No more living in fear. No more living in shame. No more living in insecurity. No more fearing the judgment of other people. You know what else this meant for Ruth? That she could have children. She could build her family. And she could be happy again. She could walk around in town and, and not feel and the judgment and the shame that she often felt up to that point. Is that good news? Does that sound like Ruth had a pretty good deal? Are you happy for Ruth and, and Boaz? I'm, I'm honestly like dumbfounded that we don't have more men named after Boaz. Why do we not have friends named Boaz? <laughs> We should have more, some of you upcoming parents, would you please consider the name Boaz? Huh? Boaz. Boaz Lee, Boaz Kim. (laughs) Bo, oh, I I should have, Boaz O would have been awesome. Bo, oh, put it together. Boo would have been awesome. Who has... Stanley, is the Shin family done? Are you, is there a time for Boaz? No more Boaz. The shop's closed. Says a young father, just really, you look really tired today, man. Could we get that man extra coffee after service? Did, did you know, friends, 
that what we have just read and just kind of reviewed is exactly the gospel of Jesus Christ. What Boaz has done on behalf of Ruth and the provisions that he had made for Ruth is exactly what Jesus comes to us and provides and promises for us as well. Guys, this is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. That Jesus comes to us. He rescues us from our debt. He restores us unto the Father's inheritance. He takes upon the shame. While everyone else, no one else in the world is ready to put up with our mess and shame, Jesus comes to us and says, I don't really care about what other people say. I don't care how, how, how messed up you are. I don't care how insecure, I don't care how broken you are. Even in the moments when we ourselves were unsure, even when we ourselves were unwilling to deal and, 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 and put up with the mess of our own lives, Jesus comes to us, son, daughter, I will take all of it. Give it to me, all of it. I don't despise you. I don't want to just put away with all that you have made up until now. Give it all to me. Come to me. And he gives us this new identity that is no longer of shame and pity, but identity that is of honor, power. You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Come on, guys. That's a great place to say amen. Let me say that again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he's a new creation. I don't know about you, but I love new things. There's something. I'm not, I'm not talking about just new. Like I, I'm talking about like brand new. Something you love the feeling of opening new boxes. When you buy your new phone, iPhone, what we at right now, 13? When you buy, huh? 15. Oh, my gosh. Please don't my wife and my, don't tell my family that we're up to 15 because they're going to want a new one. Can you imagine, like, opening something? Like, can you imagine, like, you open it up and you don't get, like, like how, like, what if I got a brand new iPhone box 11, but I, I upgraded myself. I, 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 I do things to make it more modern, more up-to-date. You would open the box, you would be so enraged. You would be so unhappy, so unimpressed. I'm not talking about a better version of something that was old. I'm talking about brand new thing. And God says, I'm not just interested in making you a better version of you. He says, I'm going to make you brand new. All the pain, all the scars, all these gunk and dirt that you have carried... What I'm going to do when I receive it, in exchange, I'm going to give you something brand new. Almost to the point where it's unrecognizable. And friends, that's what we are here 
in Ruth chapter 4. This is not a love story of between a man and a woman. We're not celebrating godly people who met on e-harmony like, yeah, we celebrate. Let's learn to love like them. I believe the book of Ruth is inserted in the Old Testament to give us a preview and a foreshadowing of what Jesus was going to demonstrate for us. In the least likely situation, a woman who was completely hopeless, completely undeserving of receiving any recognition, she could have lived the rest of her life as a nobody. But here comes the Redeemer, the kinsman Redeemer, a man of honor, such reputation that no common people could readily attach themselves onto. But he initiates everything. He says, I'm going to take care of it. I will do the talking. I will be the payer of the price. And that's the beauty of the love that you and I have been invited to. Turn with me to book of Romans chapter 5. I'm just going to read it for us, verses 6 through 8. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, yet sinners, Christ died for us. Some of the words that pop out, the word helpless pop out. The word sinners, the words ungodly, these words stand out to me. The one connective word here is while. We were helpless. We were sinful. We were selfish. We were hopeless. We were powerless. We had even no desires. But the scriptures tells us while we were still sinners, Christ came to us. Christ came to us. For the sinful, for the ungodly, still yet he reconciled us, meaning he mediated between us and God. Meaning whatever that, that debt was owed, whatever funk, whatever cacophony, whatever conflict that existed because of our sin and the holy nature, God, God who is holy, anything in between, Christ came to us and made good. He pacified there's now peace once again between God and humanity. And friends, I want you to know today that God loves you for who you are, not who you ought to be. God loves you for who you are, not who you wish to be. God loves you just as you are. God accepts you. God has accepted you just 
as you are. Amen. He doesn't say the moment that you better yourself, the moment you get some help, come on, get your act together. Then let's talk and reassess our relationship. But the, what, the, if, what the scriptures are telling us is true. It tells us that while we are still sinners. You know, even for us as loving parents, especially you with very little children, when your children come to you after you come home from a long day at work and your, your kids playing around and whatever, does it like... like Sometimes they have everything, like their face is dirty, their hands are always dirty. For me, it's always, it was always the sweat with the dark lines on their finger thing. That, that always, ooh. Even for my kid, if I see, ooh, hey, hey man, let's wipe your head. We get that, uh, you know, baby wipe and we wipe them up. Sometimes we get like little snots dribbling on their faces. What do we do? We clean them up and then we... You know, don't judge me, guys. You guys are looking at me like, man, I, do you love your kids? I do, I do. But do you not do that? Like, we even as parents, earthly parents, like, we would, like, just make sure that, like, I've lost you guys because apparently you guys don't do this, right? But the way that God loves us, he's not telling us, hey, can we just pause for a little bit? Can you just Get your act together and let's talk. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that we were deeply entrenched in sin. And the gospels tell us over and over again. And if you read Mark chapter 2, it says, Jesus came not for the healthy. He came for the sick. Jesus came not for the righteous, but he came for the sinners. And we forget the purpose of Jesus' entrance to this world. We forget the purpose of he did not come to celebrate those that were doing really well. He did not come down to have a banquet filled with people that are like, oh, good job, guys. Woo. And I left the world for you guys. And because of thanks to you guys, man, you have made my job much easier. You have made it, being God, a lot more palatable because of your goodness. Jesus said himself, the very purpose why I am here is because of the unrighteous, because of the people living in fear, because of the people living in constant insecurity, and there's no peace because they recognize in the privacy of their thoughts and their moments that they, they are going crazy because, like, man, how do I be better? How do I live with peace? What do I do with the sin that I encounter so often in my life? Jesus says, I came for those people. I want to share this picture with you. This picture was taken by a friend of mine years ago. This is in Chicago. How many of you guys love baseball? What, what baseball teams are in Chicago? Famous baseball team. The Cubs, yes. Any Cubs fan here? Good. You passed the test. In this church, in this congregation, we support the Dodgers. 
Take that, take that mic, Cho. Still praying for him after all these years. He loves the angels. I don't understand. This picture was taken. I'm sorry. This picture was taken at the Wrigley Field. Um, a glove was, I'm not sure if it was dropped or this is not his glove, but he had kind of taken notice of it. And he took a picture, he posted it on Facebook and said, a little blur, you know, this is what we used to do. This, you know, I understand that none of you guys are on Facebook anymore. I'm on Facebook because I'm old, right? Years ago when Facebook was cooler than Instagram because Instagram did not exist. And he wrote a little blurb about, oh, the filthy glove. How it's just like us, unwanted, left abandoned. And, but Christ came to us, rescued us. And I remember reading that. I was like, oh, that's such a good analogy. So that's, that is a powerful picture. Like, but did you really have to put a glove filled with soaked in urine? I don't know if you can see, but if you have an actual picture, it's like it's glistening because it's like soaking wet. But I, 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 remember, list, I remember looking at the post. I remember being moved, like, wow, that really is. And in my head, being the pastor that I am, like, you know what? If I were my friend, I would have gone a step further. You know what I would have done? I would have picked it up. No, don't. I would have picked it up, bring it home. Let me finish. I would have picked it up, brought it home, washed it, and the next Sunday, I'm bringing bringing that glove to church. And I'm showing that glove to everybody that's in the congregation. And I'm bringing this glove as close as I could to the members, and I'm waving it before them, reminding that it's been washed, reminding that I found this glove at the Wrigley Field. Urine soaked, slightly discolored. Why are you guys cringing? Are you not happy? I've done that. Why? Because what better way to demonstrate exactly what Jesus had done for us. The whole world cringed at the idea that a worthless sinner, piss-filled life of no worth, of no honor, But God works differently. When he sees something like that, when he sees someone like that, he's not appalled. I think there's a part of him that gets excited. At the thought of the opportunity of redemption, at the prospect of that he could roll up, that he could show up, and it puffs out his chest. Maybe no one wants to. No one can, no one should. 
but I can, and I want to. You know what? And I am going to. That is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the good news that you and I have now. Because we have a God that did not shy away. Oh boy, can we talk about, where do we even begin the mistakes that we have made? Where do we even begin the mess that we have created throughout our lives? Where do we begin the stench that we had lived with? But Jesus appears to us and says, no more, my son. No more, my daughter. And I want every one of you to know that Jesus loves you. I want every single one of you to understand that you are worth it. You are worth it. It's not about what you didn't do, what you haven't done up to this point. It's not about what you have done, the mistakes that you have made up to now. Jesus, God in his divine love says, I'm going to wash it all away. You know, today is a special Sunday. Today is the first day of Advent. Advent, you know, uh, begins fourth Sunday before Christmas. It's a way of reminder for all Christians that God sent his only begotten son to this world. And though we do not adequately observe the season of Advent, um, I'm letting you know, the first Sunday of Advent is dedicated, and the theme is hope. And the subsequent weeks, we have hope, peace, joy. And the day of Christmas, we have um, love. Hope. And I love that. Hope. Hope indicates that you live for and you live with something that is contrasting to what you see here and now. Hope indicates that there's something better that's coming. Hope indicates that if you are powerless, the season of power is up and coming. If you are unloved, when you hope, there's love waiting in the corner. If you are lonely, when you are hopeful, oh, there's intimacy, there's accountability, there's community waiting for you. And it is my prayer that you, before leaving this service today, that the God of love may fill your heart, fill your love with hope. And some of you I know have made already conclusions about your life. You have already said, as young as you are, you've said, you know what, my life is going to be this way. Or even as a Christian, like, you know what, I will never be better than this. It will never be different than how things are now. I'm going to just say this. God says, no. God says, I'm not done with you. 
I'm just beginning. Don't you make conclusions about something that I'm just beginning to start? And may God fill your heart with hope. Even if you have found yourself in the depth of sin. I'm not even going to say last month because I'm going to say this past week. I'm going to say yesterday. If, even if you have found yourself in sin, Jesus says, there's hope for you. I have forgiven you. I have paid the price on the cross. That's another thing that no one else wanted to do. I had done that so that you live guilt-free. I did that so that you live with power of my accomplishments. Is that good news, friends? You could say amen. I always talk back to me. It's okay. You guys are so Asian. It's like, oh, I'm not going to talk back. Talk back. Be disrespectful. <laughs> All right? You guys believe that? God demonstrated his love for you while you're still sinner. Amen? Let's get the worship team to come on up. I want you to just release your heart onto the Lord. Begin to pray. Simple prayer. God, come into my heart. Holy Spirit, come into my heart. Just yield to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And perhaps the best thing you can do, as it may be the most challenging thing for you, is to nothing and just let Him. Just concede your heart to Him. Just by praying, God, Holy Spirit, come into my heart. Come into my heart. God, we pray for healing today. God, we pray for full restoration of our hearts. 
God, we pray for restoration of identity. God, we pray for redemption of the calling and the purpose that you have bestowed upon your beautiful children. God, would you redeem it? God, over the past seasons, God, we have given away our value. We, we have wasted away the divine inheritance. Would you redeem it? God, make worthy again of our relationship with you. And God, for some of us, God, make worthy again of our marriages. God, make worthy again our promises unto you. And Jesus, we thank you for saving us. We thank you for redeeming us. We thank you for taking a chance on us when you didn't have to. We thank you for not giving up on us when we often fail and fall. Jesus, we thank you so much. And would you be patient as we continue to learn to love you better and more? We say yes to you and to do and for you to do whatever you desire to us, with us, that we may do everything through you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.